Welcome to the RLG Podcast. Today we're going to be discussing employment status. I'm David Ashley and I work for Mark Bates Limited Insurance. I've worked in and around direct payments for many years in various roles. I've also been an active member of the London Self-Directed Support Forum for over 15 years. I'm Rachel Harkin, I'm Head of Employment Advice Services at Independent Living Group, trading as ILG Support. I'm passionate about providing individual employers with the support they need by any means. But for the purpose of our podcast conversations, I'm going to come at things more from the legal perspective and specifically employment law. Great, thanks Rachel. So uh, employment status, absolutely one of the more thorny issues that I know I've I've kind of had reciprocal conversations with, thought about, talked about, read about over the years, and I know you have and we have together. So we're going to try and summarise that today in relation to direct payments. We know DPs are cash payments in lieu of services. The idea being that, well, they are widely recognised as providing more choice and control to individuals about how their care and support is is organised and managed. But we know that responsibilities come along with that and we know that that leads to conversations about employment status to decisions or or seemingly this idea that people may want to use self-employed PAs what but what does that mean is it simply a choice I think we we know it's not um although it can appear such and we know there is a requirement to at times examine somebody's employment status and and determine somebody's employment status and that that cannot just simply be decided that is based on the facts and that's what i think we want to talk about today and i'm i know that i'm fascinated to get kind of your your take on that rachel recently we had the uber case which was a useful provides us some useful context i suppose in as much as it shows us that even even a massive organization like uber who who arguably tried to kind of circumnavigate um employment status to their benefit by calling all their drivers independent contractors and self-employed when tested the judiciary pushed back and said no no these 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 rights are hard for hard won rights and actually our work our drivers we would we would your drivers we would suggest are workers with basic day one statutory rights which obviously great for them great for the drivers not so great for uber to manage but it tells us doesn't it that the law is there to protect the rights of our workers and our employees and thus, if you try and define or misdefine that relationship, get it wrong, you could come unstuck. So that's my long-winded introduction. What are your initial thoughts, Rachel, when we kind of think about perhaps the Uber case and the just employment status in, in our sector for direct payment recipients and individual employers? Okay, so I think it's worth reflecting on the different types of worker for a start. So we have three primary types of worker. We've got somebody who is genuinely self-employed. So those are people who are effectively operating as their own business. They uh, have no employment rights, essentially, and have complete control over what, when, and how they do the work and how much they charge, of course. Then we've got somebody on the other end of the spectrum who is an employee, those who have got the greatest package of rights when it comes to employment law. National minimum wage, rights to annual leave, the right not to be unfairly dismissed, and rights to redundancy payments, of course, if the contract is terminated by way of redundancy. The third element is, uh, or third type of worker, 
is what we call a worker. So this isn't a generic expression. This is ha- has a, a specific uh, legal status, really, that those who are kind of in the middle. So they've got some employment rights, but just not the whole package. So they do have rights to things like annual leave, uh, national minimum wage, eat, potentially even statutory sick pay. But because their contracts generally terminate, they tend not to have gained rights to things such as unfair dismissal and uh, redundancy payments, as an example. So what is a little bit tricky about this reflecting or trying to assess employment status is that we don't have any one single statutory definition. What we can do is take a bit of a steer from the Employment Rights Act 1996, which states that an employee is an individual who has entered into or works under a contract of employment. So to determine whether an individual works under a contract of employment, we do like to draw a distinction between whether they work under a contract of service, which would suggest that the individual is subordinate to the employer, or whether they work under a contract for services. And, and the difference there being that a contract for services revolves around the provision of services that the individual is going to offer to another rather than them having some sense of a subordination uh, arrangement in their contract. Now, what we know is that there are significant amounts of case law that has, has helped us to determine this decision as to whether or not an individual is actually an employee, a worker, or genuinely self-employed. Um, <clears throat> The tribunal would take into account all facts of a situation, not just the terms of the written agreement. And this is really important for people to note. Just because you have a contract that says you are self-employed does not mean that you are self-employed, not in and of itself. It's one of the factors that might be taken into account, but it really isn't everything. So from the case law, if if I can boil it down, really, we've come to a place where we've got this Um, irreducible minimum, where there are three key criteria that we need to establish in order to show that an individual is an employee. The first is control. So that is the employer retains power of contractual as well as practical control over the worker. So that may include uh, the power to decide what needs to be done, how it should be done, when it should be done. They have control over the services that are being offered under that contract of service. The second element is mutuality of obligation. Now, this means the employer is under an obligation to provide work and the individual must accept it. So there's this ongoing arrangement that's not terminating. It's not just focusing on a short period of service. And the third element is the requirement to do the work personally. This is considered to be synonymous with employment and worker status. This means that the worker doesn't have any right to substitute themselves for someone else to perform the services under the contract. You know, under normal circumstances, it's quite, you would think it was quite an easy thing to establish. You and I, David, are employees. We don't have the right to send our mum in to come and do the work for God us. Forbid. But of course, some, <laughs> somebody who is genuinely self-employed, it doesn't matter to, to us really as the consumer, let's say, whether or not it's the owner of the business, whether one of their employees comes in, even if they subcontract it, it's not relevant because the core focus 
of that contract is actually the service, that it's the outcome that's focused on rather than the individual having to do that work themselves. So in essence, if any one of these three factors are entirely missing from the arrangement, then the worker would not be found to be an employee. Other general factors, because of course it is a very holistic assessment that takes place, so we've got other general factors that might be considered as the degree of financial risk that's adopted by both of the parties, how integrated the worker is into the operations of the employer situation. Um, Now that in a business scenario is quite obvious, you've got an individual who really is fundamental to the performance of certain departments maybe. In the world of uh, individual employers, it's how essential is this worker to their everyday lifestyle care and support needs. And of course, we'd also be thinking about elements such as who provides the equipment, who pays the tax, who who pays for national insurance, and who purchases the insurance that's necessary for that working relationship to happen. So is there a public liability insurance in place? Is there an employer's liability insurance in place? All of these bits and pieces would all be taken into account in order to make the determination. So what we can see from years of case law is that one contract or an individual who simply registers with HMRC as self-employed and pays their own tax, that in and of itself is not enough to clear any liability that the employer may have for other elements of, of employment law rights and obligations. Brilliant. Thanks, Rachel. Wow. So, yeah, I've written a few things down as you were talking and it, it's, it's, it's difficult to summarise from a, without going into so much detail. But I think there are a few things just to explore out of, from what you've said, really. I, I've written down here written versus facts in a big bubble that's named contract. And I think this is, comes up a lot, doesn't it? And I think it's really important just to zone in on that. You have a written statement or a contract for service or a contract, in fact, a contract of service we have these statements written down this is the terms and conditions it's important isn't it for individual employers or any employer to note that there is this distinction about what's written down and agreed in writing between what actually happens and how that relationship is and my understanding is that if those two things don't harmonize um in certainly in terms of employment law or any test you'll look at the facts the facts are, are going to determine what however we determine however we choose to define or define that relationship so if what i think you're saying then is if i have a i have somebody who's a pa of mine that i call themselves employed they do their own tax and i have a contract which explains that they are they've given me even that provides they're providing me a service they are self-employed but actually i treat them every day i like an employee so i tell them to come to work when they come to work i provide the equipment like you said I don't allow them to send substitutes. It has to be them. It's important to me that it's them. In that respect, the facts that I've just outlined will, are you saying they will completely um, override whatever's written down? Is that, is that what we're saying? Yeah, I think it's reasonable to, to sort of summarise it in that way at least. And certainly HMRC are quite clear that because of the nature of personal care work and when the individual has to do the work personally, that they will very rarely see an individual in that situation to be genuinely self-employed. And that, you know, I think that's possibly one of the most important 
um, element to this irreducible minimum test is this requirement to do the work personally. In many, many cases, you, you would expect a business would have control over what they're doing, send anybody in to do the work. But let's be honest, we're talking about personal care. The employer, the person who is receiving support is not going to want any old person coming into their home. That's one of the things that steers people away from the use of agencies and actually is, you know, it's encouraging with direct payments, they've got that control. They want to know who they're working with. They want to develop a relationship with this person that's coming into their home. So then to have that and at the same time say that this individual is self-employed, the two things just don't marry. Uh, absolutely. So, and that reminds me of, a, um, of an analogy I quite often use when we do workshops about this. And I, and I often look to my right and remind myself of a leaky radiator I once had and ringing a plumber. And the plumber was arranged to come in and they were going to fix the radiator. And the night before they came, they rang and said, it's not going to be me tomorrow. It's going to be my apprentice. He's my nephew. He's fine. He'll come and do it because he was organizing his service and the way he was going to fix that radiator. I had no say, nor did I care who came to fix the radiator. I wanted the radiator fixed. That was the important contract. We'd agreed with one another that he would organize my radiator to be fixed. An employee, as you said, doesn't have that option. They can't send somebody in to record this podcast this morning, for instance. <laughs> so, you know, that is, um, that's a useful distinction, isn't it? And I think why I mentioned control at the beginning of the conversation, and it's, you know, we talk about direct payments, individual employers, and we talk about employment law, and I often think of those as two kind of behemoths, like there's a fault line and they crush and they, they rub up against each other sometimes. But control is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think when you examine employment status for individual employers, we do need to look at what is the reason for direct payments. Why do individual employers, why are there individual employers um, taking that route? And the reason is because they do want more control and continuity, flexibility, but control is important. And if, you know, it's, it's implicit within that, that you're going to want personal service. It's, it's, it's surely part of that for most people. Not for everybody. And, you know, we have to leave the caveat and, and the space for people to say, well, actually, it's not as important for me. I'm quite happy to just choose which self-employed person comes and give them a li- and, re- and, re- and reduce some of my responsibilities, give them more control. But for the, for the most part, control is really, really fundamental. So it does, it jars, doesn't it, with this idea that, and it plays into the worry and the fear that, as you mentioned, that you might call somebody self-employed, but just actually in every other sense, you're treating them as an employee. And that's the risk that is just permeates this the potential risk that permeates this setup. And I think in truth, you know, working direct payments as long as we have, the anxiety is, is, is still present. It's, it's, there's, there's an awareness of this issue and there are still local authorities and funding bodies who, who do not want to touch self-employed PAs, who don't want self-employed PAs. I would also add to that that we're hearing many, many more cases coming through where the PAs themselves are dictating that they want to be self-employed. Yes. <laughs> Because, of course, the advantage to that is that there's a bit of a tax break. When you're registered as self-employed, the income tax isn't quite as high as when you're on a PAYE scheme. Now, to some extent, I think that's a little nonsensical in that they're then losing the benefits that they get from SSP payments, from paid annual leave. Holiday pay. (laughs) Absolutely. So they're losing on those rights, but some people are more concerned about just making sure that what's coming in is, is as you know little affected by tax as possible so we've got this this sort of demanding 
PA who is wanting to be self-employed and yet the employer then is, has got to make this decision because the reality is there is a risk lying there in the background. And that is, and that's actually, as you spoke there, that's something that's, um, that's a, that, that is a real issue for our, I'm not going to say individual employer because there is an issue with keep calling people employers. If they're using self-employed PAs, of course, we probably need to use a different term. So for the purposes today, let's say DP recipient so that we can use that broadly. I know that we do have some self-funders, but we'll use that term. So a DP recipient then using a self-employed PA, the PA is requested to be self-employed. They don't have another option. It's the, the person they want. And they go down that self-employed route. The self-employed person perhaps hasn't considered, like you said, that let's say uh, maternity rights, they won't, they won't have them. They won't have holiday. In a couple of years' time, maybe their situation changes. The real, the big problem, I think, and another reason for this kind of uncertainty is that if in two years' time, having been treated as an employee for those 24 months, um, they did decide, they, they did, for instance, I don't know, just become pregnant and, and expect maternity rights. They hadn't fully appreciated what it meant when they decided to go self-employed at the beginning. The red is the risk is it. My understanding is the risk sits then with our direct payment recipient, who if somebody were to examine that situation and actually they've been treated like an employee despite asking to be self-employed initially, there is a real risk, is there not, vis-a-vis the Uber case, as we discussed, that employment legislation will is designed and will function to protect the rights of that PA. Absolutely. Who now wants maternity rights and has been treated like an employee for two years. And that's that's the pro- that's part of the problem isn't it i think we need to acknowledge absolutely most definitely the employer doesn't doesn't let go of the liability because it was the employee's choice to enter that contract in the first place it's always the employer's responsibility to ensure that they have adequately assessed the status of the worker and that they're providing with them those rights from day 1 and you know just because they've been put under pressure from the worker who's perhaps looking for that tax break and i'm sure there are other reasons for it um but yeah, just because that worker is demanding it doesn't mean that it is enough for them to say that they haven't, um, that they've avoided liability, let's say. Now, I would add to this, of course, we're talking very much from the point of view that, that a, a self-employed PA, it, it might come across like we're saying it's never possible. And it's not strictly true if we've got a really you know, a PA is operating as if they're running a business. They may even, on occasion, I've come across cases where they're actually registered as a formal company. They are taking clients elsewhere. They are providing their own equipment. And they are even uh, providing substitutes for their work if they're not able to come in and do the work themselves. So there are occasions where it's doable. But I think we just have to recognise for the purpose of this conversation today that we're generally focusing on direct payment, um, individual employers who really do want uh, the same PA, that, that individual to come in and work for them in their home, somebody that they know and they can develop that relationship with. Okay, so we we understand employee, worker and self-employed and we understand the context in which we're talking about those distinctions in direct payments and personal assistance. Employees then, personal service, really, really important under the direction of the direct payment recipient. Um, a worker, like an employee, but less rights, um, let no continuity, so ideal for backup and uh, contingency. Uh, and self-employed, somebody who's independent, truly independent, providing a service, 
a DP recipient letting go of some of that control um, that they might otherwise had if they employed that person. That's the theory, isn't it? That's the sort of structure we're working towards. Now, one question I had, Rachel, and I, I'd love to hear you explain it because I know we, we, we talked about it, is there is a tendency, isn't there, to um, use the term zero hour worker and casual worker and to kind of lump them together. I know I've been guilty of that in the past. And there was some there was some changes in the law around zero hours workers. People will be familiar that there was attempts to kind of that there was some concerns about the zero hours workers. Um, would is it possible for you to summarise those differences because and and the change that happened? Because my understanding is a zero hours worker means there's no set hours. There's no set hours, but there's we talked a bit for employees about this. You mentioned obligation and mutuality of obligation, and a worker. There being a lack of this, that, that it's, there's no there's no obligation to offer hours or to accept it. Is it the same for a zero hours worker? Is it misleading to to kind of consider a worker to casual worker to be the same as a zero hours worker? Is there anything you could kind of reflect on on that question, Pat? Okay, well, I think the first thing that's important to note is that a zero hours worker, a casual worker, a bank worker, there is no statutory definition whatsoever. These are just generic terms that we use, and that's why it can lead to a bit of confusion. I have my own thoughts as to how I would sort of categorise the different um, the different types of arrangements. So, historically, zero-hours contracts were, were typically used by employers who wanted to have that guarantee that the worker would turn up when the work was offered. But what they weren't doing is they weren't giving any promise of work in return for that. Hence that expression, zero hours. It was literally written into the contract. Your hours of work are zero. That's where this sort of expression came from. So what they were attempting to do is create that mutuality of obligation, one of those key factors of of the irreducible minimum that we talked about earlier, and ensure that when they called on that worker, they would attend. Now, of course, the public scrutiny, the political scrutiny, everybody, I suppose, would be familiar if you watch the news. Um, It was really like, no, no, this is not acceptable. And of course, the reason it's not acceptable is because it doesn't make sense to have somebody who is promised no hours whatsoever and yet is under this obligation to um, attend. Because it's not mutual, I guess. Just sorry to jump in, but that's the key thing is you've said mutuality, Robert. There's no... Mutual obligation of the employers insisting you're available whenever I need you, but I might not need you. Is that the injustice? Yeah, brilliant. Sorry, carry on. on. There is no no mutuality. (laughs) And of course, you know, it's not good for any economy to have workers who were stuck under a contractual obligation of fidelity to one employer, and yet they've not got any money coming in. It's just not good enough. So what happened is the government changed the rules and that sort of sense of fidelity that that obligation on a worker to attend under those kind of arrangements was eradicated so now you cannot enforce a contractual clause unless you are promising hours of work you can't enforce a contractual clause that says the employee must attend and you can't allow the individual to suffer a detriment if they are accepting work elsewhere so Of course, the other thing to consider is the way in which those employment contracts work, those those zero hours arrangements, is they created this sort of ongoing arrangement. So it would last indefinitely. It's week in, week out, month in, month out. 
There was no termination of the arrangement. Can I ask then, sorry, did they get continuity then, even if they didn't work for large swathes of time? Yes. Right, okay, sorry. Yeah, in theory, the contract at no point actually severed and they remained under the obligation to the employer. So that also means that whilst that contract is in existence, we've got the build-up and accrual of annual leave. So it does actually increase the employer's liabilities. This is why I like to draw a distinction between that kind of zero hours ongoing relationship or, you know, contract. The, um, that expression, I like to differentiate that between um, them and a casual worker. Casual worker, what we think of is that this is somebody who there isn't an intention for the contract to continue, that the contract severs maybe at the end of a working day, maybe the end of a period of assignment, however we've structured that contract. And ILG makes sure that uh, we build into our casual contracts an absolute severance that stops any further liabilities for annual leave in between periods of assignment. It just makes it so much clearer. Um, So these are the, the different expressions that I adopt. I think of a zero hours contract as being one where there was an attempt to have this ongoing mutuality of obligation, the contract continues and never severs, or your casual contract, or you might even say bank worker contract, are the ones who step in as and when required. And we make sure that the terms are drafted in such a way where that relationship is very distinct from somebody who could otherwise be considered an employee. Uh, It might be worth noting at this point that in some areas I've noticed that just to make life easy, it appears, a zero-hours contract is issued to individual employers no matter what. You know, kind of thinking that that creates all sorts of levels of flexibility. I would like to advise against that approach. I, of course, am going to take a more... um, a direct approach. I'd like a contract to absolutely reflect what it is that that individual employer needs. So if they have a need for a worker to turn up week in, week out, because they've got serious care and support needs, and they literally can't cope with that employee without, without that PA turning up, then give them a promise of hours. Let's make sure we've hit those requirements of getting them in to do the work personally, making sure there's mutuality of obligation. Uh, and and ensuring that the employer has got control over that worker. Now, the casual contract, on the other hand, we also advocate when it's appropriate to use it. So when you need backup staff, a brilliant thing, absolutely suitable for workers who want lots of flexibility, who want to be able to take the odd hour here and there, but really don't actually have the need for ongoing income, it can really work for some workers. And of course, it's, it's going to work for an individual employer to cover such things as, as last minute holidays, people being off sick, you know, there's a need for casual workers. So let's make sure that the contracts that we issue really help to target the kind of arrangement that that individual employer needs. Fantastic. Thank you for clarifying. And actually, yeah, that, okay, so we can add that almost to the lexicon, can't we, zero hours work. And one of, I mean, you mentioned our contract templates that ILG are issuing. Um, have a look on the podcast when it's posted on ILG uh, website because we will have the contract templates underneath uh, this recording along with um, any other documents we mentioned. Um, so one of the things that strikes me and people listening might consider is 
where's the steer? This is all very kind of, it feels open-ended. I've always felt this about employment status, that it's, you know, when, you know it's, it's open-ended. The mere fact that cases like the Uber case go all the way to Supreme Court in order for us to get a determination, it feels like there must be a better way. A few years ago, we had the Taylor Review, didn't we? There was the government review into employment um, practices in the UK, where I think, you know, this issue was, was raised, where the, the kind of an understanding that the gig economy was here and that that was going to raise lots of questions about, about rights, stuff that we've taken for granted, um, the way companies want to operate, the way, in fact, services are delivered in this kind of open-ended way and the impact that's having on the workplace and people's rights and everything else. So we'll, we will put the Taylor Review a copy of that under the podcast as well. But what came from that was the government's good work plan. And the good work plan does talk about employment status. It does talk about trying to harmonise the tax, the HMRC position, if you like, and the employment legislation position on, on employment status to simplify the test. To my knowledge, although it, it kind of points towards a vague roadmap of how that might happen, I don't understand, I'm not aware of any kind of firm practical steps that have even been suggested. And from memory, there were things, uh, there were lots of comments at the time, the good work plan around from barristers and, and the an employment specialist suggesting that the system we had is as good as it gets. It's, there really isn't a system that's more, that will be more robust because the minute you try and impose a robust structure around that, you miss the nuance, you miss the kind of cases and the fact that it is, as you've su- suggested, a, a multifaceted test. You have to look at lots of the facts and, 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 and everything that surrounds that relationship. So, you know, is, do you think this is where we are and this is as good as it gets? Or do you think there is more we can expect by way of legislation to, to catch up, if you like, with the gig economy and make it easier for people to kind of navigate this system in employment. What do you, what do you think, just as a last word? On I that? would love to think that we could create some sort of a system that would help to at least analyse when an individual is an employee, a worker, self-employed. It would be wonderful. It would, it would make our jobs an awful lot easier. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. at the same time, I think we need to recognise that in doing so, you can restrict commerce. And let's be honest, that's one of the reasons that employment law exists in the form that it does, that there are an awful lot of protections for employees. But at the same time, there's, they try and strike a balance to ensure that businesses can function and flourish because, you know, both are needed to have a very strong economy. So I, I'm not entirely convinced that the governments are actually going to give us a roadmap to have very clear employment statuses. I think what we actually have in recognising the case law and in having our judge-made law is it's giving us lots and lots of signposts, lots and lots of steers to help us to determine what status a worker is. And actually, surely, that gives you the utmost flexibility when you start to try and define things in a more rigid set of rules. Are you going to restrict people from being able to set up the kind of arrangements that suit them? Yeah, interesting. I mean, we could we could talk more and more about it. It is fascinating. And I think um, one of the things I should have mentioned in the Good Work Plan, um, we, you know, it was about as, as much as anything, improving people's rights. And we did see some practical changes come that I didn't mention that most notably probably for this discussion is the issuing of, of written statements from day one. And that was all about, wasn't it, letting people know, making sure a worker, to use the kind of colloquial term, understands um, 
what the deal is from day one. It also, as well as the statement being issued to an employee from day one, it also brought in changes for the worker to be issued mm. with a statement which previously wasn't necessary under the Employment Rights Act. And also rights around if your situation changes. So if you are consistently asked to come to work for six months or more, you have a right to ask for an amendment to that contract, as I understand it. You, you know, yeah. you're treating me like an employee. Can my contract reflect, reflect that, please? So that we, I suppose that is in some way recognition. And we will, I mean, do have a read if any of you listening haven't seen it, the Taylor, the Matthew Taylor Review and the Good Work Plan. We'll put links, as I say, under the podcast. They are worth a read. They are worth looking at. I think the last thing to talk about probably that people often ask, you know, is there case law? I, I think we've mentioned the Uber case. The, the closest case that I think, again, if anyone who wants some further reading, it is a fascinating case. Was I think it was December 2018, perhaps, was a Chatford Robert case uh, whereby we had a live-in a live-in carer who was introduced to a family by an agency who did introduce live-in carers. The family wanted one carer to support their elderly father and live in with him. They didn't want a team of carers. Um, the agency, the introductory agency, provided somebody to do that, who and she successfully did that for 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 a number of for a number of years, I think, two or three years. But then there was a dispute. There was an issue. She was asked not to come to work by the son and daughter who were managing their father's care and support and she felt as a bit like the example we gave her earlier she felt that she'd kind of lost her livelihood overnight lost her job and therefore surely she had some rights my understanding is that she made a claim to the employment tribunal she, she obviously had some advice and that the tribunal looked at it and, and, and there was a preliminary hearing whereby they had to assess whether or not in um, she had employment rights in that role despite being doing her own, all her own tax and national insurance and being registered self-employed. Um, so it's a fantastic case to read through, to have a look at, to try and see these arguments in action and why this is how the system works and how those two things interplay, the fact that she was self-employed, the fact that they were asking the question, well, was she treated as an employee? And I don't, I don't want to give away the ending, but, I, you know... <laughs> But uh, yeah, the employment tribunal make it a very strong case for why she should be granted employment rights. And, and there is an appeal from the family who say, well, surely that can't be right. Um, centering, I think, around her ability, her, the fact that she did send replacements from time to time when she was sick and when she was on jury service. But still, it was determined, no, you don't have you, 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 it's still consistent with personal service. She wasn't exercising an unfettered right to send replacements. And it's a real, it's a warning call again, isn't it? Similar in, in, in a sense, more relevant than the Uber case, I think, because it, it gives us a steer, doesn't it? I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Rachel? Just chat for Roberts. I agree. And, and the key sort of takeaway for me is that she had chosen to be self-employed. She had registered with HMRC. She was paying her own tax, paying her own national insurance. To some degree, she was received certain payments that you wouldn't expect a self-employed person to be. So she lived that kind of um, blend of rights as a somewhat self-employed worker, but somewhat as an employee. And then eventually, of course, no matter what she had agreed to at the very beginning, eventually it turned out that no, her employment rights were protected. It just goes to show how an employer really has to do a very thorough assessment right at the beginning because their liability will not go away. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I would recommend anybody to have a read of it. So we, as I say, there's lots, there's going to be lots underneath this podcast on ILG. So do do um, pop into the ILG website to have a look if you are interested in it. Reading through Chatfield Roberts, um, the Uber case, have a look at our contract templates and, of course, the good work plan and the Taylor review. But there is um, a couple of words that jump out at me when we talk about Chatfield Roberts, um, Rachel, and this is another big one. And it's the fact that she was there as a, a live-in carer. And I wonder is, does that determine, does that, does that give us a steer? It certainly gives us a steer where we're going to go to on our next podcast. But is that just, just before we finish, that'd be my, my one last question. It's a bit of a segue into the next episode. Was the fact that she was living instructive in any way to the determination of employment status? I struggle to see how it wouldn't be. How would right. you have anybody reside in your home and let them substitute you for somebody else? Uh, yeah, I think it was absolutely relevant. I mean, you can't really get much more personal than sharing a home with somebody. <laughs> absolutely, I agree. And that I think, yeah, it's perfect segue. So I think that we'll wrap this up here. I hope that's been... Um, useful to everybody and, and we've, we've managed to summarise I mean we could and we know that we'll talk about employment status again because it's not an issue that is ever going away in our in our sector I don't think Rachel, would you agree? No absolutely we constantly ask questions about it there's constantly uh, people who were wanting to create different types of contractual arrangements that suit them that suit the workers and it's totally understandable why they would want to do that and we've just got to make sure that we apply the law and protect our individual employers as best we possibly can fantastic thanks rachel right so we better go and get planning for our talk of living care we'll uh, see you all again soon okay goodbye